Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, season two. We're talking about the directors. I'm Mario Sakura, and with me is my co-host, TJ Dahl. How are you doing, TJ? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, I'm excited about our episode today. So, uh, again, I'll remind listeners of the premise of the podcast is what we're doing is in each episode, we are looking at a particular movie director and talking about how they represent a particular Enneagram type. Either our belief that it is their Enneagram type, or we just find this theme throughout their films. Okay, so we're going to talk about four movies today. And the director we're going to talk about is Wes Anderson. And we're going to talk about Enneagram Type 4, which is particularly attractive to you, TJ. Indeed, that is my type. So, yeah, looking forward to diving right into this guy. Yeah, and all great. things 4. All right. Before we talk about Wes Anderson, let's talk about the Enneagram Type 4. Now, again, we're not going to go do a real deep dive here. I encourage people to listen to the episode from Season 1 on the movie Lost in Translation if you want to do a deep dive into the description of what a 4 is. But uh, we're going to assume that you have basic knowledge. And as we go through the movies, we're going to talk about different aspects of the 4. Okay. So we call or I'll say I, in the awareness to action approach to the Enneagram, talk about the four as someone who is striving to feel unique. Okay, They're driven by this desire to figure out in which way, in what ways, they are different from other people. They are unique. They are an individual. Okay, They can wrestle with this idea of not, not really knowing in what ways I'm unique. You know, They can actually feel contradictorily both too attached to other people, too associated with other people, but also too disconnected from them, right? I am not like that, but they're always wrestling with these things that I am not like, right? Which shows some kind of attachment, okay? If I'm spending all my time thinking about how I'm not like this person or that person, it shows there's a part of me that's a little bit worried about that. Uh, any comments on that, TJ? Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of negative self-descriptions. <laughs> if there's anything I'm not, it's blank. Or I wouldn't be caught dead doing such and such. There's this big yes. fear of being associated with the wrong kind of people, namely people who don't have taste, people mm-hmm. who conform, people who have mediocre values, who just go along with whatever whatever the big thing is that everybody else is into. I will turn my back on that, and in doing that, I will show that I'm unique, I'm sensitive, I'm different from everybody yes. else. Yeah, it's a big challenge that the four has. You know, if you think in terms of theology, there are different ways of describing God, okay? So there's the via positiva and the via negativa approaches, okay? So the via positiva is, well, God is love, God is good, God is justice, right? It's all these things that God is. Whereas in the via negativa approach, it's identifying all the things that God is not, and then whatever you're left with, that's what God is, right? Because you can't really describe what God is. You can say he's not, you know, he's not uh, evil, he's not uncaring, and and so forth, right? He's not limited. And four is kind of, uh, not to say that they have a God complex or something, right? Or, you know, but uh, um, (laughs) you you can see TJ's face here saying that, uh, well, maybe, maybe so, right? But it's this idea, like you said, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not that. I don't know what I am, but I'm not that. Okay, so it's this reaction against. 
Now, there is this connection to the other two points on the Enneagram, right? Or this relationship to the other two points on the Enneagram that we like to talk about. There's the relationship to point two, uh, which is striving to feel connected, and the relationship to point one, which is striving to feel perfect. And as with all the types, there is this kind of complicated relationship with those points that we're connected to. With the point two, there is this element of a desire to connect, this longing for romance, but not just romance, right? It's this this sense of feeling special because I'm connected to these people or these things that are special, right? So if this person approves of me, I must be okay. If this person loves me, I must be okay. But they have to be interesting people. They have to be special people, right? They can't be boring, mundane, you know, run-of-the-mill people, like you said, TJ. Tell us about that. Yeah, there's a desire to finally be seen and understood by somebody. Fours quite often go through life with this, just this sense underlying everything that nobody sees me, nobody wants me, nobody loves me, nobody values me. But maybe, maybe I will find that one person, that person who sees through all of the bullshit and sees how unique and what a shining diamond I am. And then there will be just the two of us because that person will also be unique. That person will also be sensitive and have good taste. And the two of us will have our own special world full of tasteful things and full of sensitivity and full of beauty and depth and intimacy and all of these things. And we can turn our backs on the world and create our own world together. And that is something we will see in a number of the movies we're going to talk about today. For sure. For sure. Uh, so the other thing, uh, the other connecting point is a point one, this uh, what we call striving to feel perfect. And again, the four has a complicated relationship with that strategy, because on the one hand, they don't want the rules to apply to them. Right. Don't put your rules on me. But they have a lot of internal rules around what they respect. You know, they can be very judgmental about aesthetics and, you know, and quality like you're talking about. They can have very demanding expectations of other people, right? So it's kind of like the rules, you know, the rules don't apply to me, not the legal rules or the social rules, but, you know, don't make me color inside the lines on the coloring book. Right. It's kind of the, the, the mindset. But there can be this kind of finger wagging intensity in fours when it comes to their expectations of other people. Yeah, you're not living up to my standards. You watch popular sitcoms. You're a fan of sports. You like your family. So it's the four's uh, own standards of like the right way to be. And if somebody doesn't live up to those, that person is done. They are dead yeah. to me. They're not even worth considering. Which, yeah. of course, is the kind of thing fours fear ultimately that the world is doing to them. People are dismissing me. People aren't valuing me. So it's, it's this reverse, you know, as Russ Hudson calls it, the leaden rule, treating others mm. the way you would least like to be treated. Mm. Yeah. So I guess the uh, episode on friends is out, uh, TJ. <laughs> uh, right. All right. <laughs> I'm very proud to say, as a four, that I've seen a grand total of one episode of Friends in my life. <laughs> I saw it, right. didn't like it, didn't feel the need to go back. <laughs> Particularly right. that asinine theme song where people sing that I'll be there for you. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> Pledging of belonging? No, thank you. 
Yeah. Yeah. Although there is a um, a good four character in in the show. I mean, oh, listen, really? I'm not suggesting. Yeah, the the Ross I think is uh, a pretty fourish character, the paleontologist and well, anyway, so we won't get into friends because I don't want to do a podcast on it either, right? So so the other important point I think to bring out, the classical the, the thing in terms of the classical enneagram, the vice is envy. Okay? You know, and it's not you know, I want your money, right? It's it's not that kind of uh, envy, although you know it may manifest that way sometimes. But it, it's often about I want the life you have, or I want this quality that you have, right? Or you know, I see, I, I want to be treated the way I see people treating you, sort of thing, right? So they can live in this world of wanting this thing that feels unattainable. Yeah, there's a sense that everybody else got something that I didn't that I missed that crucial day at school where we all learned how to belong and get along. And everybody mm. seems to know the secret of just how to be a human being that was kept from me. And mm. it's not fair. So there's yeah. this sense of walking through life with some fundamental deficit that everybody else has. And how dare they, how dare they be happy and functional? I yeah. hate them for it. And I also yeah. wish I had it, but I don't really want to admit that because that might mean admitting that I want to be part of this world that I've spent my whole life saying that I despise, the world of people who belong, the people who have fun and get along together. But I yeah. secretly actually do want that. Yeah, yeah. You know, not to jump ahead, but I think envy is a theme we're going to see in Rushmore. Because as you were talking about envy, I was thinking about how envy is kind of this mix of desire and anger and longing, right? All sort of blended together into this, you know, this emotional quality that's not quite hateful, right? But, you know, has a bit of an edge to it, you know, but still sort of a, a neediness to it at the same time. Okay. Yeah. In a certain way, right? So, and, and I think we see that with Max Fisher and his relationship with uh, Mr. Bloom uh, at one point. But again, we won't jump ahead here. So, uh, one final thought regarding fours if we look at the classical virtue of the four, it's equanimity. Right? So the work of the four is to find equanimity. It's to find this quality of peacefulness and contentment and balance, right, uh, rather than the emotional volatility that we often see in fours of just this, you know, peacefulness in a sense, right? But it's it's not the peacefulness of the nine, right? It's kind of an engaged, you know, balanced quality, not getting too high, not getting too low sort of thing. Okay. And again, I think this is a theme that we see in Wes Anderson's movies that really we can touch on it well, right? These characters on this quest for a sense of equanimity and, you know, this uh, often this, you know, sort of resolution that involves equanimity in some way. Okay. Tell me about that from your perspective. Yeah. Equanimity really is the kind of thing where you don't actively do it. You notice it when it's happening and you notice that I can be with whatever feelings I have. So fours famously have a lot of stormy feelings and they still happen. And then I'm able to just be with them no matter what they are, without necessarily putting a story to it. But if if it is appropriate to be sad, or if sadness just comes up, if envy comes up, if fury or, or hatred comes up, anything like that, I can be with it, I can identify it, and then I can let it go. And similarly, I can be with my joy, which is verboten for a lot of fours. You know, there's this sense of like, if I'm happy that I'm one of those filthy conformists. So I can I can actually connect with people. I can be 
I can have a good conversation with my parents. I can be with friends. I can laugh and lose myself with that without my inner critic coming in and saying, don't you do that. Yeah. I think the key lesson for fours to learn is that they don't have to force uniqueness, right? They don't have to manufacture uniqueness. Everybody that comes into the world is unique, right? I mean, no matter how much you and I are similar, we have different DNA, we have different, you know, fingerprints, right? Different iris prints, you know, all this sort of thing. So, you know, we can't help but be individuals. And the irony for many fours is that their efforts to force some sort of uniqueness make them fall into see these sort of cliche characters almost, right? Of, you know, uh, every hipster looking exactly alike, you know, to the point where you can't tell them apart anymore, right? So, you know, but that's hard to learn because it doesn't feel like the reality. And again, I think that's where that equanimity starts to come in. When, four, when fours start to realize that, things settle down for them. Right. Okay. I don't have to force this. I can just be. You're unique no matter what. And exactly. any attempt to prove that you're unique actually betrays a deep down fear that you're not. But yeah. you could listen to the same music as everybody else. You could dress the same as everybody else. You could watch the same TV shows or be a fan of the same sports teams and everybody else. And none of that negates your uniqueness. Nothing yeah. ever could. So uniqueness is something you can just relax into and just understand that you have it no matter what. And that's a really freeing realization for a four. No matter what you create, no matter what you do, you will be unique, and so will everybody else. And that doesn't negate belonging. Great. All right. So it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, this, for those of you who are listening to this rather than watching it on YouTube, I just became conscious of the picture of Honus Wagner over my shoulder, right? So you made the comment about watching sports, and Honus Wagner was baseball player at Pittsburgh Pirates in the 1910s and 1920s. I'm hoping that at least it being such a uh, an archaic baseball picture, TJ, you're not going to hold my <laughs> my uh, my enjoyment of sports against me as being proletarian here. Okay, so. I <laughs> I have I have done a lot of work over the last decade to remove the bug <laughs> from my ass about sports fandom. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to talk about Wes Anderson. TJ, you're going to talk about that. I just want to make a comment. You, you said last time that Clint Eastwood was a director who doesn't really have a style. Okay, that a lot of his movies look different. You know, you'll see themes and so forth, but there's not you're not watching a Clint Eastwood movie and saying, you know, just looking at it and saying, oh, that's Clint Eastwood. Right now, I think we're going all the way the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> OK, with a director who all you have to do is look at something and say, that's Wes Anderson. And in fact, I, I shared with you the other day a website of, uh, that's based on a book. And geez, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name right now. Accidentally uh, Wes Anderson? Accidentally Wes Anderson. And what these people have done is they go around, they, they collect pictures of places around the world that are quintessentially Wes Andersonian. Right. Uh, uh, you know, that represent his aesthetic that either were in one of his movies or could be because it's such a clear and distinct style, right? There's a lovely coffee table book that, that they put together that's really cool to look at. But tell us about Wes Anderson and why we think he represents type four, TJ. So yes, Wes Anderson was born and raised in Houston and absolutely does not conform to any stereotype anyone might have of a Texan. Uh, he is <laughs> a very 
sensitive and thin and quiet and shy from everything that I've read and heard about him. He attended the high school that was later used to film the movie Rushmore. It's a private school. And then he went to the University of Texas at Austin, and that's where he befriended Owen Wilson, who became a career-long collaborator with him, both as a co-writer and as an actor in his movies. He and Owen and Owen's brother Luke Wilson made a short film called Bottle Rocket in 1994. It was a 12-minute black-and-white movie that got screened at the Sundance Film Festival and got a lot of attention, particularly from producer James L. Brooks, who, among other things, directed the movie Terms of Endearment and, and As Good As It Gets and produced Taxi and, you know, many, you know, huge career. It was one of the producers Simpsons. of the Simpsons. Yeah. yeah. And then he funded a feature film adaptation of Bottle Rocket, which, again, was faithful to the original uh, cast and premise and received a wide release and completely flopped. It was seen by very few people, but it was seen by enough people to get him a deal to make another feature film, and that was Rushmore, which starred Bill Murray, and the first role for Jason Schwartzman. And that became a moderate hit, and then that paid the career that he's followed ever since. So he's built a body of work over the last 25 years that, as you said, has his distinct fingerprints all over it. You can pretty much identify the Wes Anderson movie from a single frame. And as such, he's been parodied a fair bit. You can find these on YouTube. You know, there's a Family Guy parody. There's a parody of, like, what if Wes Anderson directed the X-Men, that kind of thing. I can't imagine somebody doing that with Clint Eastwood. You know, you can't... Parody Clint Eastwood's directing style, right. but parody is Clint Eastwood's acting style. Yes. And along those lines, he only does his own projects. He writes or co-writes and directs all of his own movies. They're all comedies. He has never worked for hire. He has never done somebody else's thing. He has never written a script for somebody else. He has never made a sequel. He's never worked on a franchise. His movies are always moderate successes. They're never box office smashes. And not once have I seen a movie of his where I got the sense of like, oh, he's trying to find a wider audience. They're always just in that same style. It's individualistic. It's immediately recognizable. The comedies, which goes outside the lines of the stereotype of fours. Fours are generally thought to be tragic and melancholy and overdoing that. What's not often part of the literature or part of the conversation is that fours can be really funny. And yet his comedies have melancholy and tragedy and romance and sometimes tragic romance woven right in quite cleanly. There's often characters who fall helplessly in love. My belief is that he's a preserving for, a self-pres for, in Riso Hudson terms. This was brought to my attention by my partner, who is herself a preserving for, who one of the big appeals in his movies, in her mind, and something anybody recognizes in his movies, is a great attention to the visual detail, particularly of the physical environment. So in Royal Tenenbaums, there's the house in Rushmore, there's the school. In Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, there's the ship. And we spend a lot of time in this environment, and everything in that environment is arranged just so. It's perfect. Everything is in its exact right place. The colors are vivid. The decor is specific and beautiful and rich. So there's always attention to detail. And there's always a meta element in his movies. There's, there's a constant reminder that someone is telling you the story. So that comes in terms of the composition of the frame. It also comes in terms of narration, chapter headings that bisect the movie, or actor and character credits right off the top. So a lot of different things where he's reminding you that I'm telling you the story, and I am Wes Anderson, and this is a Wes Anderson film, unlike anybody else's. Yeah. I, I couldn't think of anybody who is that clear, consistent, distinct 
in their vision, right? Maybe a, a Hayao Miyazaki, right? Who, you know, uh, did the, the anime movies who we'll come back to when we talk about Isle of Dogs, right? But, you know, you can see one of his things. But even that, I don't think there's, you know, somebody who is as distinct in the look of what they do. And I agree with you about him being a preserving four. And, and I, I meant to talk about the three instinctual biases or the three subtypes of the four in the beginning, but just quickly. So the, the, the strategy is striving to feel unique, but the way that strategy plays out is usually related to the dominant instinctual bias, okay? And the preserving bias is about one's environment. It's about one's well-being. It's about one's surroundings. And so something we see in preserving fours is this tremendous attention to detail in one's environment and very often in one's clothing as well. And costumes, you know, I'll just come out and call them costumes in Wes Anderson world rather than clothing is is hugely distinct, right? I mean, it's just, again, you look at the way somebody's dressed and you say Wes Anderson. So huge, huge attention to detail about this. Now, one of the other things that we see is that there's a, a particular pattern of expression with these three domains. And so what happens with the preserving four is they have this, we call the navigating domain, the zone of inner conflict, right? Where they're drawn to navigating, they're drawn to groups, but not so much, right? Or they find it tiring or exhausting. So they tend to be, I I want to go so far as to call them loners, but very independent, characters, right? Very much, you know, I have my space. I guard myself when it comes to relationships. I don't let people in. I can be hard to reach, right? Very often, you know. And when it comes to the transmitting domain, which is kind of this standing out, look at me, you know, this uh, intensity of performance, that's the zone of indifference for the preserving four, right? So they're not big, expressive people. If you think of, uh, say, uh, Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck, right? That dramatic, you know, I lost my hand, you know, sort of thing, that operatic quality. You don't see that in the preserving four, okay? Or at least not very often. I mean, you might see it, you know, you know, at certain moments at home, that sort of thing. But they're much more self-contained than certainly the transmitting four. And boy, oh boy, do we see self-containment in Wes Anderson's movies. Yeah, you're not going to see him do a cameo in his own movies, much less play a significant role or even a walk-on. I think he's he's got a walk-on in Rushmore and blink and you miss it. Yes. And he doesn't have a, a public persona to speak of, really. You never see him in People magazine. You know, he's not having high-profile right. affairs, even though he works with a lot of the same actors, movie to movie. And he clearly has actors he likes working with again, but you never see him partying it up at a nightclub with, the Wilson brothers and, you know, all the other stars of, right. of his generation or anything like that. And I think this is reflected in his characters as well, right? His characters are very self-contained. Again, you'll see variations in that. Certainly Max Fisher is, you know, a fairly intense character, okay, in some ways. But most of the characters, it's almost as if they're holding back, okay? There's almost a five-ish sort of quality in some ways, right? But not quite. You can still see it's a four, okay? But you could easily mistake the restraint as something coming from point five. I would associate it more with that preserving instinctual bias sort of holding in the energy. Yeah, one more thing to throw in. As it happens, I know a guy who went to high school with him. 
So I reached out to him. This is somebody I met a long time ago. And I reached out to him and I said, so tell me about the guy. And I did everything I could not to angle him towards the answer that I wanted and just asked as plainly as I could, what was he like? What do you remember? And let me read some of what he, he wrote. This is yeah, wonderful. He said he, he was fun and kind and unique. He has a unique way of looking at things and he always has. So he used the word unique twice, like almost immediately. Mm-hmm. He said he, mm-hmm. he was the only one to ask if he and his friend Brett could design every aspect of their yearbook page. Everyone else's page was formatted the same, but Brett and Wes's page was completely designed by them. Wow. He said, Wes and I formed a little club called Fruit Mongers, and the club's main activity was finding places around campus to impale large pieces of fruit on sculpture. <laughs> so, a, a pretty <laughs> unusual activity, a prank, very on brand for a teenager, but a unique kind of prank and ultimately harmless. He said he was quieter than a lot of people. He made a video for a U2 song and put it up at the talent show. So he was creating and presenting his stuff from the time he was a teenager. And finally, he said he was always friendly and generous and gracious, and that didn't change when he became well-known. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, certainly that that quality of uniqueness. I was looking at the Rotten Tomatoes reviews of uh, the movies that we're going to talk about today and was not surprised, you know, but how often this idea of uniqueness, distinctness, et cetera, came up in either about him or about his movies. So uh, again, he certainly embodies that idea of uh, striving to feel unique. One other thing I I wanted to say in general about his style, you touched on this a a little bit, but, you know, as I was doing some research, a lot of the discussion of his movies is about how he frames the camera when he is shooting a scene. The character is almost always dead center, okay? And the background is flat, okay? So, uh, you know, for those of you who are watching, so I am closer to the wall behind me than TJ is, okay? So TJ has more space. So it gives depth and dimension to the, the shot a little bit, right? Now, we're both sort of centered, but usually when you're watching a scene, you know, the characters are rarely dead center in the frame, okay? But what that flatness and that centeredness does is it creates a feeling of self-centeredness, right? Of self-observation, of self-awareness, okay? It almost takes one out of the action, Okay, and so the way I think about this as I was watching it, it's almost like it's this attempt of creating a self-consciousness, okay, and inviting self-consciousness as well. Okay, again, you you always feel like the the movie is in some way a stand-in for Wes Anderson, or at least you know some of the main characters are that it's him exploring his inner world. Okay, it's him sort of, you know, figuring out the world through his perception of it and him being at the center of it. Okay, but it's always this sort of even when it's about other people, it's about this bringing back to the character. The other thing we see very often is the the bold colors, right? The the color palette, very, very distinct. The primary colors. Okay, vivid. They really jump off the screen. They draw your attention in. He's really good at assigning particular colors to characters. Okay, that Bill Murray in both Rushmore and the Royal Tannenbaums, there's a lot of mustard 
color, right? In some of his other movies, we see a lot of real bright primary red, right? The ski caps in Steve's issue and, and Bob Balaban's jacket in Moonrise Kingdom. Okay, it's this, again, it's this. The clothing really stands in for characters here, right? To make them identifiable. Danny Glover's character in Royal Tannenbaums has this really rich royal blue blazer that I think he's wearing in every single scene. Yes. And I generally am blind to clothing as I make my way throughout the world. Not when I'm watching a Wes Anderson movie. You can't not notice it. And and not just the clothing, but you're right, the environment in general. The colors are so vivid and specifically chosen that it's just... It's just there in your awareness, whether you want it to be or not. Yes, yes. He very much is is like a painter. And the way he frames shots very much looks like everything is arranged. So there's the figure at the center who's the focus. And yes. then if there's other characters, they're quite often arranged on either side of them. Or the background is quite beautiful, you know, a number of trees or something like that. Like, yes. as you watch the movie, you're really seeing it through his eyes. It's no accident. Yes, Yes. There was one other aesthetic thing I'll, I'll point out here before we go into the first movie. When, when we talk about Isle of Dogs, something you notice is that the fur on the dogs is moving during the scenes. Okay. He first did that in, was it The Fabulous Mr. Fox? Is that the name of the movie? The Fantastic, yeah, Fantastic Mr. Fox, right? And I I was watching something on YouTube about this, and they showed the original King Kong. And they talked about how during King Kong, you can see the fur on Kong moving, you know, like the wind is blowing through it, but it's very erratic and that sort of thing. And the reason for that is, is because it's stop motion. And every time they would move it, it would adjust the fur. You can get around that by using synthetic fur. Okay. But when you use real animal fur, it causes it to move. And so when he was doing fantastic, Mr. Fox, the producers and you know, other people said, look, you know, just use the synthetic fur, right? You won't get this movement. And he didn't want, no, I am not going to use synthetic fur. Are you kidding me? We're using real animal fur for this. And so you see that rippling of the hair. And then when we see the Isle of Dogs, it's almost exaggerated, right? I mean, you know, I get the sense watching it that he was playing that up, right? Moving it more than he needed to, you know, so you would catch this. But it was, again, it's this this aesthetic that he creates is just so unique, so individual, so idiosyncratic, right? It's just this is Wes Anderson, and there is no one like me. In this case, let me remind you of the literal fingerprints of the creator all (laughs) over my creation in every frame. Yes, yes. All right, so let's move on to the first movie, okay? So the first movie is Rushmore with Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman and Olivia Williams. So it wasn't his first movie. I think it was his second movie, right? Bottle Rocket was his first. Bottle Rocket, by the way, is a movie I really, really liked. Wasn't as d- clearly a distinctive movie, but nothing like Rushmore or his later works, right? And so Rushmore is a slightly more, I guess, accessible than his later movies are to a general audience, right? But it was still quirky, right? I mean, it was still... And like you said, it opens with curtains opening as if you're watching a play, okay? And again, I liked what you said about the meta-storytelling, 
okay, where you know that this is somebody telling you a story, right? So it opens, the movie opens with the curtains opening. And again, the producer said, get rid of that. You know, why, why would you want to do that? It lets people know that this is a story. And he said, I know, that's why I'm doing it. You know, it is a story. And so what's interesting in the four movies that we picked, he uses a different storytelling device, in each one, right? So the first one is a stage play, right? It's the opening curtains. Royal Tenenbaums is the chapters of a book. Okay? Isle of Dogs is told through journalists, right? Uh, when the translation is done from Japanese to English, it's usually by a journal, you know, a translator who's a news reporter or journalist or something. And then I got the sense, again, and not to jump ahead too much, but with Moonrise Kingdom, the Bob Balaban character almost felt like a Homeric narrator to me. <laughs> Right. So it's this vocal around the campfire storyteller in a way. So Rushmore opens up again, the theme of it lays and the main character, 15 year old Max Fisher is a student at this private school. Again, the same one that, you know, a fictional version of the same one that Wes Anderson went to. And he is in every club that you can imagine, right? I mean, and, and the founder of most of them as well, right? The backgammon club, the calligraphy club, the, you know, this club, that club, every, everything. And, and so as you're watching all of these things about him, you're thinking, wow, this guy must be, you know, the superstar of the school. But he's also kind of a weirdo, and he's probably the worst student in the school, right? He's there on a scholarship. He comes from a lower-income family, and they're on a scholarship, and he's on the verge of being kicked out because of uh, academic shortcomings, right? Uh, so it opens with the curtains, and you're taken into this world that is not reality, okay? It is clearly shown as a play version of reality, right? And I remember reading something about the producers saying that, you know, take those curtains out of there. But he said, no, I want them in there. And they said, well, people are going to think it's a play. And he said, I want them to think it's a play, right? So again, very deliberate, very mannered in the way he presents things. When the curtains open, we find Max in class, the only kid in the class wearing a blazer, right? So standing out amongst all these other kids who are Wearing what, TJ? They're wearing just the standard light blue button-up shirt that's part of their uniform. And having gone to private school myself, uh, our uniform involved button-up white shirt and a sweater. Sweater was optional. Most people chose not to wear it most of the time. So that's the sense I get with the blazer and Max Fisher's fellow students at this private school. He always wears it. There isn't a scene yes. where he's not wearing the blazer. And not just in that opening scene, but many scenes. You look at his classmates, they're all just wearing the standard shirt. You know, a couple buttons undone, as casual as they can make it. Not Max. He's a dandy. Yes. yes, he's a dandy. And contrasted to the other students who are all wearing the same thing, light blue shirt, tan khaki pants, right? Which is as bland as you can get. Okay. So he is in this world of blandness. And he is in a math class. And the teacher gives them what he says is one of the hardest math problems in the world. And Max gets up and after a couple of moments of stroking his chin and writing in chalk, solves the math problem and everybody lifts him up on their shoulders and carry him out the hero. And then we find out he's dreaming. Okay. And uh, he had been sleeping during the presentation of Herman Bloom, played by Bill Murray, who since this movie has been in every one of Wes Anderson's films. He, I don't think he was, he wasn't in Bottle Rocket, but, uh, you know, he's been in every other Wes Anderson movie, even as a voice in Isle of Dogs. So 
Max, once he wakes up, becomes enamored of Herman Bloom, who's giving a talk about how to be successful. He's a successful local businessman. And Max becomes kind of obsessed with Herman and wants to be his friend. Okay, so you have this 15-year-old kid becoming this friend with a 50-year-old man, which is a little weird, but also reflective of the four's mindset. Tell us about that, TJ. Yeah, there's the movie is very much set up as if it's the fantasy creation of a four. I mean, you can say that with the opening of the curtains at the beginning, and the movie does end with the closing of those curtains, and those curtains yes. appear throughout the movie as kind of chapter headings with the name of a month projected onto them. Yes. In the world of this particular four, and in many fours, that four is really important. Everybody cares about this guy. You know, in reality, it, you know, his classmates are kind of indifferent to him, but the person with taste, Herman Bloom, sees that this kid is special. So just as Max becomes enamored with Herman Bloom, Bloom becomes enamored with Max and offers him a job at his steel plant and not a blue collar job. This is not specified what it is, but it's more like, I want you to be my son, basically. I, I just yes. really like what you have to say after a brief exchange. So it's very much yes. this sense of like, Everyone is concerned with Max, whether it's positive or negative. You know, another figure in the movie played by Brian Cox is the head of the school, Dr. Guggenheim, who hates Max yes. and refers to him as easily one of the worst students in school. And later in the movie has a stroke. And it's Max's appearance that causes him to speak for the first time in 10 days as Dr. Guggenheim <laughs> curses Max's appearance. So nobody ignores him. Nobody's indifferent to him. He's a very important person. Yes. And going even a step further regarding Herman Bloom, Bloom's own sons, and there are two of them, they're twins, are just terrible kids, right? I mean, they're bullies, they're, you know, they're obnoxious, they're fighting all the time. And Herman is disappointed with his life, right? There's that great scene where Herman's having a, a party at his home and everybody's, you know, hanging around and you can tell his wife is having an affair with some guy and Bloom knows it and he climbs up on the diving board and jumps off and does a cannonball into the pool and then sits at the bottom of the pool holding his legs, you know, tucked in while this other kid swims by, this little kid swims by and looks at him. But you can just tell that Herman is looking to escape. Herman needs something to recharge, to energize his life. And who's going to fill that? Max, right? Max is going to kind of bring him back to life because Max is so valuable to people. Okay? So Max also desires the attention of one of the new young attractive young woman teachers miss cross played by um olivia williams and at one point when uh, she first meets him she says to him i've never met anyone like you max and his response is you're right you haven't okay so again it's that idea that no there is no one like me i am unique and a word of advice to anybody out there who would like a four to fall in love with them Say that to them. If you meet them and tell them that, that you've never met anyone like them, they will love you forever for that. Yeah. So a good pickup line is, you remind me of, right? it's not a good pickup line, right? That's right. what I should say, right? Yeah. All right. Good. Uh, so noted. Right? All right. So Max expects the teacher to fall in love with him, Miss Cross. 
shockingly, she doesn't, right? I mean, she's a woman in her probably early 30s. He's a 15-year-old boy. So there's this unrequited love affair, and Max enlists Herman to help win her affections. And Herman, for whatever reason, clearly an irresponsible 50-year-old man, agrees to help him, right, but falls in love with Miss Cross himself. And this is where they become rivals and enter into this kind of dark relationship, this dark element of their relationship. And, and you know, and again, this, this captures the envy that we talked about earlier in the podcast, right? Max's anger, disappointment, barely concealed aggression toward Herman is pretty dark, right? It takes a dark turn from this lighthearted sort of comedy that we've been watching. So tell us about that. Yeah, he uses his various skills to sabotage Herman, and Herman hits him back. So at one point, he spills the beans to Herman's wife that he's having an affair, and that leads to a divorce, and Herman being expelled from his own home and checking into a hotel, and then Max, using his bees from the beekeeping club, pumps a bunch of bees into Herman's room. And then later, he cuts the brakes on Herman's Bentley, and when Herman goes to pick up his sons at school, he careens out of control for a while, no harm is done. He doesn't hit anyone. But it's pretty close to being a disaster, which leads justifiably to Max's arrest. So the stakes are pretty high on what, you know, the sober light of day shows is a pretty ridiculous notion that a 50-year-old and a 15-year-old are both competing for the affection of the same 30-year-old woman, as if the 15-year-old has any stake in this, as if there's any possibility, as if it would be anything other than cute or ridiculous. But within the reality of the movie, and certainly within the reality that Max presents, this is a very viable rivalry. And Max's feelings are real. And he does believe that he has a chance, and he does believe that Herman is ruining his chance, and that he's justified in doing all these extreme things to compete because his love is so pure. And the possibility of this pure, real romance is there. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, again, this theme we start to see related to point four is that I should be recognized and valued as an equal to or better than anyone else, even adults, if I'm a 15-year-old kid, right? I'm not just some kid. I'm somebody special. I'm somebody worth paying attention to. There's also this theme of adoption, right, that comes in. And now Max is not adopted. His mother had died, and he's being raised by his single father, who is a barber. The great Seymour Cassell plays his his barber. We'll see him again. And it's almost as if he is seeking to be adopted by Herman Bloom, right? I mean, not literally, but he's trying to, you know, almost replacing Herman's sons through the, the before they start to have the feud, of course, okay? So this feeling of coming from some place of unworthiness and never really feeling like you belong, okay? I'm better than this place that I'm coming from, but I'm not truly accepted. You know, this is the challenge of, you know, somebody who is adopted is this feeling of, you know, I'm not really one of the kids, okay? So no matter how much the parents love them, it can feel like not enough for a lot of adopted people, okay? So adoption, again, is a theme we're going to see throughout the other movies that we talk about. And it's it's part of the consciousness of a lot of fours. A lot of fours fantasize about having been adopted. There's this sense of, like, there's no way I come from these troglodytes who don't understand yes. me and don't resemble me in any way whatsoever. My real family is out there somewhere. 
and I'll find them. They will understand me. That's actually one of the discriminating questions we ask fours, people that we think might be fours, right? Have you ever felt like you were adopted, right? And you'd be surprised how many fours say, oh, absolutely. And they get very energized by their reaction to that, right? So that there's this story of not fitting in, you know, of being kind of Moses in the basket on the Nile almost, right? All right. So uh, so they have this big feud uh, over Miss Cross's affections. One thing leads to another, you know, they all make up. Of course, Miss Cross doesn't end up with either of them. She ends up dating. I don't know if she ended up with the, the Luke Wilson character, but she does leave the school to sort of get away from this and, you know, move on with her life. And Max wraps it all up, brings everybody together by putting on a play. Okay. Again, a fourish sort of theme is that I will, through my powers of creativity, take control of this world and shape it. Tell us about that, TJ. So Max puts on three plays over the course of this movie, and it is very much reflective of what Wes Anderson does, not only in this movie, but his entire career, is I will create a world. I will write, I will direct, and as opposed to Wes Anderson, Max also stars in in two of these plays, in lead roles. I will make this world exactly the way I want it. And the production values of these plays, the first of which happens at Rushmore, the second two happen at a public school that he ends up going to after he gets kicked out, where he continues to wear his blazer, even though his students dress even yes. less like him there. But the production values of this rival that of any Broadway play I've ever seen. It's very much a heightened reality. So the final play is called Heaven and Hell, which is set in the Vietnam War. And there are palm trees, there are explosions, there's a helicopter, there's reference, we don't see it, but there's reference to him hanging on to the leg of the helicopter, which pulls him off stage, <laughs> which he says was an ad-libbed moment. One of the characters has an actual working flamethrower as part of the play. Everyone attends this play. All the people who love him, hated him, they jump to their feet for a standing ovation at the end. It is a triumph, and it's clear that this is Max's triumph. He's yes. created the world exactly the way he wants. He has expressed himself in his own particular way, and everybody got on board, including the bully from Rushmore that he had hated, that he co-opted into being in the play by shooting a BB gun at the guy's ear and somehow <laughs> used that to convince him to be in one of his plays. And the guy does confess, even though he'd always hated him and always bullied him, but he always did want to be in one of his plays. Yeah, so the world right, kind of right. bows down to the genius, the irrepressible magnetic force of Max's unique creativity. Yeah. And I, I was watching an interview with Wes Anderson on the Charlie Rose show, and Charlie Rose asked him, is Max Fisher a stand-in for you? And he says, well, Max is me, but with confidence. Right? <laughs> uh, which, you know, because that is a quality of Max's that doesn't really strike fourish, right, in some ways. There yeah. is this you know, irrepressibility. There is this, you know, I can accomplish anything sort of quality. And it's it's as if Anderson was saying, you know, I envy that quality in people and I'm going to put it in myself, even though it's not part of my nature. So I found that very interesting. Yeah. Max has an utter lack of self-consciousness. Yes. He doesn't seem to be bothered by the fact that he's not a popular kid. He doesn't seem to be bothered by the fact that his grades aren't very good. He wears this bright red beret most of the time. Nobody else dresses like that. Nobody mentions it. Nobody teases him. But you never see a look of defiance on his face of like, why don't you mention right. my hat? Look at how different I am. He just wears this as if it's the most normal thing in the world. 
Yes. And he goes about the world as somewhat of a sophisticate, you know, wearing that hat. He's always paying for things. He's the son of a barber. He's there on scholarship. He even buys popcorn for Bill Murray's millionaire industrialist, successful businessman character. He's treating the cast in his play to root beer. He, you know, he tells one of the students, get a root beer for anyone who wants one. I don't want one. Uh, he's, he tries to start a fencing club at the new public school that he goes to, and he's the only member of it. And he signs his name with calligraphy every single time. He does all of these things as if that's just the most normal thing a person yes. can be. In some ways, there's foreishness there, but it's not a perfect portrait of a four. Because, I, I completely agree. You know, he doesn't have the, the withdrawn, melancholy self-consciousness that particularly right. teenage fours have. Yes. Yes. I completely agree. And again, you, you know, with this podcast, we, we don't get too hung up on whether a character is, you know, specifically a four, but what are the four-ish themes throughout the movie? But I, I do agree with you. It's not, well, it's certainly not a person you would see in real life in any way. And you would not see a four who combines all the qualities that Max does. I don't, I don't think, right? But it's, it's a wonderful surprising. fantasy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a couple of other points about Rushmore before we move on. So they had a really hard time casting the role of Max. They talked, from what I heard, to almost a thousand actors and were almost ready to give up until they came across Jason Schwartzman, who is the cousin of Sofia Coppola and nephew of Francis Ford Coppola, and ironically, of uh, Sophia Coppola, also a four. And she's, you know, we talked about her movie last season, Lost in Translation, as the representative of type four. So there is a theme there. Bill Murray, you know, Bill Murray's an odd character, and he, you know, he was sent the script. I forget exactly how it got into his hands. They wrote it for him, but never assumed they would be able to get him. They had a long conversation about Kurosawa on the phone, Bill Murray and Wes Anderson, talking about Kurosawa's high and low for an hour. And uh, Wes Anderson said it was basically Bill Murray talking about the movie because Wes Anderson had never seen it before. And at the end of that hour, Bill Murray says, OK, you know what? I'm going to do this movie. Right. And, you know, and was uh, was, you know, so enamored of it. He worked for scale. Right. So I think he made nine thousand dollars as his fee for being in the movie. And at one point they were going to do a scene that did involve a real helicopter. Okay, and the movie studio would not give them the funding for the helicopter. It was going to cost seventy thousand dollars. And Bill Murray hands Wes Anderson his checkbook and says, "Just do whatever it costs here." And you know they ended up not doing it anyway. So this started a career-long collaboration between Bill Murray and Wes Anderson, and I think it's a good one. As well as a renaissance of Bill Murray's career. Absolutely. He hadn't lapsed into obscurity by that point, but if you look at the other movies he was doing in the 90s, movies like The Man Who Knew Too Little or Larger Than Life, they weren't very good. They weren't very popular. They weren't well-received critically. They don't reflect on him well at all. And from the point of Rushmore on, everyone has loved Bill Murray. And he's starred in every Wes Anderson movie since then and many other excellent films by many other directors. Yeah, it really was a turning point, right? Because Bill Murray had been sort of the broad comedian of Caddyshack and Stripes and Ghostbusters and all that sort of thing. He did do that detour into the razor's edge, which was kind of a serious 
attempted in a serious spiritual sort of movie, but that's not what he was known for. And then after this, he became known as a serious actor, right? I mean, it really did change the way that Bill Murray was perceived. And he's become, I think, one of the great performers of our time. All right. So uh, why don't we move on, TJ, from Rushmore to Wes Anderson's next movie, one of my favorites. I remember seeing this movie in the theater and just being absolutely enthralled with The Royal Tenenbaums. Tell us about that. So The Royal Tenenbaums came out in 2001. It was a Christmas release up against Fellowship of the Ring and a number of other very successful films. And it really cemented Wes Anderson as a voice people were interested in. So it's the story of the Tenenbaum family, who are a family of geniuses. And Wes Anderson said in an interview, he originally conceived the movie as an exploration of what it would be like, well, like an exploration of geniuses. And as he worked on it, it ended up being an exploration more of family. So the Tenenbaums live in a big house in Brooklyn. That's where most of the movie takes place. It's a very central set piece, which gets back to what we were talking about him being a preserving for. We really explore this house in detail. And the walls yes. are all painted vivid colors, and there's rich wood, and it's a big house, and there's brick on the outside, and it's iron fencing, and it's very elaborate. It's the kind of house that is catnip to any preserving type, uh, particularly a preserving for. I think this is where Wes Anderson really finds his aesthetic vision in this movie, right? Yeah. It was there in Rushmore. But it wasn't as clearly defined as it is in the Royal Tannenbaums, I felt. Well, he had more control over the environment. Yes. So, you know, yes. Rushmore had been enough of a success that he was given a bigger budget and just more ability to explore and just take things further. I think he was also just developing more confidence as an artist. It was his third film. So you can see this ascent if you watch his movies in chronological order of Bottle Rocket and then Rushmore, we didn't have as big of a budget, he didn't have as much control, and then Royal Tenenbaums, he really came into his own in a number of ways, that being one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So right. the patriarch of the family is named Royal Tenenbaum, played by Gene Hackman. He's a lawyer, and he left the family decades before and has been living in a hotel. He was disbarred and is broke and is about to be booted from the hotel. The matriarch is played by Angelica Houston. The character's name is Ethelene, often called Ethel, and she's an archaeologist as well as a bridge teacher. Her accountant is Henry Sherman, played by Danny Glover, who proposes to Ethel near the beginning of the movie. They have three adult children who all live away from home and then all return home for various reasons. So Ben Stiller plays the eldest, Chaz, who is a business genius, who became rich and famous for his wealth as, I think, a 10-year-old. You know, it's never quite clear how old the kids are in that early scene in the movie where it shows what they were like when they were a kid. Yeah, he devised his, he bred Dalmatian mice. And then he also <laughs> bought property, and it was him that got his father disbarred. So he was wearing a suit. He had his own rack of rotating rack of identical ties, and we wear a different one every yes. day, and he took it very seriously. And Gwyneth Paltrow is Margot, the adopted middle child. She's a playwright who achieved a lot of success as a playwright. She's married to Bill Murray's character, Raleigh Sinclair, who's a famous neurologist. I think every character other than Gene Hackman's character in this movie has written a book or written multiple books. That's something that comes up right. again and again. And the framing device of this is a book called The Royal Tannenbaums, which seems to be a novel. It's narrated by Alec Baldwin. So every segment opens with a new chapter of the book. We see that page, the opening page of that chapter. We can read the first sentence, which sets up what we're about to see. So the implication is that there's a book written about the Tannenbaums, probably fictional, and the author is telling us this story. So yet again, we've got that theme of the meta 
level of the movie. You know, you were being reminded that somebody is telling you this story in a really particular way. Luke Wilson plays Richie, who's a former world tennis champion, whose career just fell to pieces when he had a meltdown, which we find out later the reason why that happened. And he's been traveling the world on a ship ever since. And Owen Wilson plays Eli, who is a neighbor, who is a successful novelist of Westerns, and who's having a secret affair with Margot and is also increasingly spiraling into oblivion drug addict. So Royal, to find some place to live, fakes having cancer in order to lie his way back into the family home, just to give him some time to get back on his feet. And while he's there, he re-engages with his family. And my guess about him is that he's an eight. He really does like having control. He wants to feel powerful. He likes being the patriarch of the family, but he's been absent from them for a long time. So he starts interacting with them in really vivid ways. The story, his, the pretense of having cancer just explodes, and he's booted out. And without going into detail, I'm sure we'll get into this, but eventually the family works through their differences, and they do come back together as a family. So it's a huge ensemble. There's a yes. big cast, and you know there's significant actors in every role. Every role is important. Everybody has a thing. Everybody has an area of expertise. Everybody has written a book. Everybody's book has been successful. They all have their own particular things, and they're all messed up in their own particular ways. Yes. And circumstances, yes. like I said, conspire to move them all into the same house, which is a big part of yes. why the whole movie not the whole movie, but a lot of the movie takes place in that one environment that we explore pretty thoroughly, which is a real house. It wasn't done on a soundstage. Oh, really? Oh, I see that. I didn't know. Interesting. Yeah. So about the actors, you're, you're absolutely right. There were some, you know, Danny Glover, Angelica Houston, Gene Hackman, Ben Stiller, uh, others. Also, we're starting to see the repetition of some of the character actors, such as Pagoda, right? The guy, uh, um, let's see if I can... If I can find his name right here, a guy named Kumar Palana, who I doubt he's an actor, right? I don't know where that guy came from, right? But he was in Rushmore, and it's, I think he played the uh, groundskeeper. And he here he's back as the uh, I don't know butler slash you know assistant, uh, you know whatever he is in this movie, and spy for Royal, you know who's you know he's been spying on the family for Royal all along. This movie reinforced me watching it again, what an amazing actor Gene Hackman is, right? I mean, we saw him last time in Unforgiven, and he gave in one of his best performances there. But re-watching The Royal Tannenbaums, I, I was just in awe of Gene Hackman as an actor in this. He was able to—he's he, an awful person, right? He's lying about, uh, you know, about having cancer, right? He's he's clearly racist, right? I mean, his his relationship, you know, with Danny Glover. Some of the comments to him, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, and you know, which kind of brings up a theme of uncomfortable themes in Russ Anderson movies that I don't know could be made today, right? With you know some of the things that he says to the Danny Glover character, I don't think you know, like, are you talking to me, Coltrane, sort of thing? You know, it's like, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, you want to jive out, you know, and so it's like, mm, right? So he's an unlikable. I mean, on paper, at least, profoundly unlikable human being. His relationship with his adopted daughter is terrible, right? I mean, you know, she puts on a play when she's a child and, you know, and it's with, you know, characters dressed up as animals. And afterwards, she says to him, so what did you think? And he said, yeah, it was okay. I don't think the characters were fully developed. I didn't find it believable. He hands his 11-year-old daughter's play that she staged on her birthday. 
Yes. And in a <laughs> yeah. beautifully fourish moment, because I believe Margot really is a, almost a oh caricature of a four. Oh, my goodness. Played by yes. Gwyneth Paltrow. So as, as he just brutally pans her creative effort on her 11th birthday, she gets up and walks away while everybody is singing happy birthday and looks back twice, glaring. Just yes. completely hurt. Another element to that is she's adopted, and they mention that he always mentions that this is Margot, my adopted <laughs> daughter. So let's let's just remind you that you're not really one yes. of this family, and that she disappeared yes. for a couple of weeks when she was 14 to find her biological family. And when she came back, she was missing half of a finger. So we yes. find out later that that happened when she did find her family, and it just happened with an accident when the father of that family was chopping wood and chopped off part of her finger, so that finger was replaced with a wooden prosthetic, <laughs> which at one point you can hear it tapping, I think against the edge of yes. a bathtub, as this constant yes. reminder of, I'm wounded, I'm yes. different, I'm maimed. Yes. And when somebody asks her, did you try to sew the finger back on, she says, eh, wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah, the, the the absolute stereotype of the wounded, dark, brooding four. She had secrets. She would disappear. Nobody knew where she went. She was married at one point that nobody knew about. She'd been a lifelong smoker and nobody knew. And all these things that were just mysterious and dark and secret about her. She's always sullen. She's wearing dark eye makeup. She's a playwright. She's a successful playwright at that. And, and in, in the resolution of the movie, you see that she's written her newest play after a long absence, because that's part of her character at the beginning of the movie. She hasn't written a play in seven years. But then she writes a new yes. play, and it includes the line where a father says, this is my adopted daughter. And of course, Royal and the audience is delighted by that. And something that I just thought was wonderful is in the narration, it said, the play ran for two weeks to mixed reviews. So instead of, <laughs> instead of giving her a big victory at the end by writing this triumph that everybody loves about her dysfunctional family, eh, it's actually a failure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I think on this, Alec Baldwin was the perfect narrator for this. I mean, you, you know, it's one of those things where you think, oh, anybody could have done that. But boy, uh, who would you have placed in that? Or can you think of anybody you would have placed in that role who would have narrated and been a more pitch perfect narrator for the tone of this movie? I, I thought that was really inspiring yeah, I cast. I can't imagine anyone better. But yes, as you were saying, Royal is a pretty despicable character. But his arc throughout is that he's eventually redeemed. And one of the yes. moments that hit me in the heart, the very first time I saw this in the theater, when I initially didn't like it, which I now wonder what I was thinking, because I just love it now. But there's a moment after his pretense of having had cancer has exploded, when just about as he's about to leave, he turns and says to the family, you know, these last six days of interacting with all of you have probably been the best six days of my life. And Alec yeah. Baldwin, as the narrator, comes in and says, as soon as Royals said these words, he realized they were true. Mm. And that just really melted my heart to hear that here's this big loud deceitful racist absent father for decades insensitive brutal you know unaware of the name of his son Chaz's dead wife like it's just a checklist of every bad thing a father can be and then you see him just melt of with love and engagement with his kids and with his grandkids and yes. then he turns around completely, which again, I think gets back to something we were talking about with Rushmore is in some ways, this movie is like a fantasy created by a four of what if my awful, insensitive, absent father were to come back 
and apologize for what a yes. shit he's been my entire life? Yes. What if he was to suddenly be supportive and kind and generous and say the exact things that you would want a good father to say? And do it because he finally realized how wonderful I am. Right. 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 And not just because, you know, life changed him or anything like that, but he was finally able to see how special I am and how deserving of love I am. Right. I agree. You're a tremendously tender moment. And again, we have this idea of, you know, it's a comedy, yet with some real darkness. I mean, the Luke Wilson, uh, the bomber, the, the brother who was the tennis champion, tries to commit suicide because he realizes that he is, you know, in love with his, uh, or he knew he was in love with his adopted sister, but I think it occurred to him that this love will never, you know, be requited, you know, that it's not to be. And so he's standing there in front of the mirror and he says, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. I think he says, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow, but then slices his wrists at that moment. Right away. Yeah. And at, this is after shaving his head and shaving his beard. And the whole scene is set to the music of Elliot Smith, the song Needle in the Hay. And Elliot Smith, I'm quite certain, is a four himself, who took his own life a couple of years after this movie came out in a particularly brutal oh, way. He stabbed oh, himself in the heart with glass. Oh, so my gosh. His music, his entire body of music, is suffused with four-ish melancholy and uniqueness. He was an incredible songwriter and guitar player and sometimes played in his own tunings. And his music is incredibly sad. He was Oscar nominated for a song that he did for Goodwill Hunting. I think three of his songs were used in that. So yeah, it's an incredibly affecting sequence in Royal Tannenbaums. And it's not just that he, he realizes his unrequited love will never be requited, but that she's been having an affair with Eli, the family friend, under his nose the entire time. And there's nothing he can do about it. Yes. Fortunately, he survives, okay, and ends up you know, kind of coming to some resolution about the whole situation. And, you know, you know, there is this sort of uh, healing that happens. Even the uh, Ben Stiller character, the son who is the most hostile toward Royal, you know, very, very aggressive, very, very angry, comes around to accepting him and in fact is riding on the back of the trash truck uh, at the end of the movie kind of this joyful celebration of you know togetherness on music lots of fourish music through it oh, there's yeah. the nico cover of uh, jackson brown's these days which is you know just the most melancholic fourish song i you know may have ever heard right you know, music is a big thing in his movies right rushmore was all British invasion songs that were kind of, you know, quirky deep and, cuts. and unusual. Yes, deep cuts, absolutely. And and as were the songs in this movie, right? I mean, you know, These Days is a song that some people might know, but most people won't be familiar with the Nico cover of it, right? Nico, the, what was she, a German singer? Model, was with, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, model singer who was with the Velvet Underground in the 60s for a couple of years. Very obscure sort of stuff. I think there's also... Oh, shoot. Who was the one that was married to Serge Gainsbourg? Birkin? Jane Birkin, maybe? Jane Birkin? Anyway, very obscure music uh, comes comes through this. There's also Nick Drake. There's the music of Eric Satini. <laughs> There's songs from the Charlie Brown Christmas special, which occur in a yes, number of his movies. Yes. Which is really yes, interesting to think yes. of that as, first of all, Charlie Brown yes. as you know, a children's character, a cartoon character who's depressed. That's the central feature of him. And that the music from the Charlie Brown Christmas special is really sad. It's some of the only sad Christmas music yes. you'll ever find. 
and he uses it yes. repeatedly. And then in the scene yeah, when Royal is taking his grandsons out pranking, the song that they play is Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard, Paul Simon, another four. <laughs> a famous song, but at the same time, if you're going to have a joyful song, let's get a joyful song by a four. Because there's still yes. even a note of sadness, even in Paul Simon's joy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just back to the Charlie Brown music. It was the Vince Giraldi Christmas uh, music, the great jazz piano player who died a couple of years ago. But honestly, it's the only Christmas music I can listen to is that uh, that soundtrack, quite frankly. But uh, it's one of my favorites. And Nick Drake, boy, oh, boy, a four-ish character there. Uh, suicide. Oh, yeah. As he felt like a failure and was revitalized by a Volkswagen commercial that played his song Pink Moon that became ubiquitous uh, 15, 20 years ago. But he was not around to to enjoy his fame, unfortunately. So, again, these themes of loss, heartbreak, lack of appreciation, but this tenderness underneath of it all. In a comedy. Yeah, a lot of tragedy. Uh there's another forest thing that shows up in this. I mean, we mentioned already Margot's missing finger is termed by another an obscure singer-songwriter I'm a big fan of. He didn't originate the term, but he's got a song by this title, The Wound That Never Heals. This is a singer-songwriter called Jim White, who I believe is a four as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and okay. uh, the notion of the wound that never heals. There's, there's Margot's finger. There's a BB that's stuck in Chaz's knuckle from when his father shot him during just a family gameplay. And they were supposedly on the same team. And his father shot him and then laughed. And that BB was never extracted from his hand. And (laughs) then there's Richie's unrequited love for his sister, which can never be consummated. And then there's Eli, the neighbor's lifelong wish that he was a talent bomb. So everybody's got some fundamental lack that is just there, which fours really go through life feeling like, you know, I'm wounded in some way or I'm different in some way. In Tom Condon's book, The Enneagram Movie and Video Guide, he talks about a lot of movies featuring monsters or people who are malformed being representative of fours, whether it's Dracula or The Hunchback of Notre Dame or Cyrano de Bergerac, is there's something fundamental about me that makes me different and, most crucially, unlovable. And this is just who I am, and that's how it's going to be. Yeah. A real quick Jim White thing was it made a documentary called Searching for the Wrong-Eyed Jesus, which was just wonderful. And again, you know, I mean, just the title, right? Searching for the Wrong-Eyed Jesus. Holy cow, is that a great four title, okay? But uh, really good documentary if you can find it. All right. Okay, so Rushmore, you know, if you haven't seen it, boy, Royal Town and Rushmore. I'm sorry, the World of Time, but yeah, thank you. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, rush out to see it. I, I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful movie. And still very accessible. Again, very idiosyncratic, very stylized, but uh, still very, very approachable and watchable as you know, kind of a mainstreamish sort of movie. Okay. Now with our next movie, the Wes Anderson style is becoming more and more clear. Okay, you know, it's it's becoming, I hate to say this, but almost standard, right? Which is the last thing a four would want to hear. But, you know, again, you're seeing, uh, okay, well, you know, here we go with Wes Anderson again. But, and I will say, much like your experience with the Royal Tenenbaums, the first time I attempted to watch Moonrise Kingdom, I, I wasn't in the right frame of mind. I watched about 20 minutes of it and just, you know, turned it off and never went back to it until you suggested it for this p- podcast. And, I really, really liked this movie. 
Okay. Tell us about Moonrise Kingdom. So yeah, Moonrise Kingdom came out in 2012. It debuted at the Cannes Film Festival. It was the opening film there. It takes place on the fictional island of New Penzance in the northeast of the United States, actually filmed in Rhode Island. It's an island with no cars. There's only one car. It's the police car. It takes place in 1965. So the two main characters are 12-year-olds. There's Sam, who is both an orphan and a cocky scout, which is a thinly veiled version of the Boy Scouts, but I can imagine the Boy Scouts of America didn't want their brand associated with this film. <laughs> so, And he wouldn't have used the Boy Scouts of America anyway. He had to create <laughs> normal scout trip. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly right. right. But they have the same aesthetic and same priorities as the Boy Scouts. We see their scoutmaster played by Edward Norton, and he's got his troop, and then there's one scout who's not there, and that is young Sam. And then when they look in his tent, they find that he has cut a hole in the side and left a map of the side and left a letter <laughs> of resignation saying, you know, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, but saying I'm not wanted here, so I'm leaving. And then later when, when Edward Norton is calling his scoutmaster and calling the police and saying about this, he does refer to Sam as the least popular member of the group by far. <laughs> so very much a four-ish element, again, designed by a four of nobody likes me. It's just a fact. And adopted. And adopted, yeah. And not only is he adopted, but we find out pretty soon that even his foster parents don't want him. They just say that he's too much of a problem. When the police captain, played by Bruce Willis, calls them up to let him know that he's missing and that they're looking for him, they say, I'm sorry, but we can't invite him back. And they don't really specify why. And from what we see of him and what we see of Susie, who we'll talk about in a second, they both have tempers, but they're not brutal. They're they're not pyromaniacs. They're not, you know, right. they're not beating their siblings or anything like that. They're a little weird, but they're not bad kids, right? Yeah, it's like what's so bad about this twelve-year-old that even a foster family says, "Ah, no thanks. We just rather not have him." So he leaves, and then we also meet young Susie, a twelve-year-old girl. She's the daughter of two lawyers, played by Bill Murray and Frances McDormand. She has three siblings, and unsurprisingly, she's the odd one out. She's the only one who doesn't get along. And she and Sam, we find out later, have developed a correspondence and come up with a plan that we will run away and live together in the wilderness. So they do. They execute this plan successfully, and they meet up, and they run away together. So they're pursued by the scoutmaster, Edward Norton, and the rest of the khaki scouts. And they're pursued by the local policeman, Bruce Willis, who's a very kind of sad and lonely policeman who's always listening to Hank Williams movies. They're eventually found. They do successfully get away for a while because Sam, for an unpopular scout, is a really good outdoorsman and is just really practical and very good at what he does. And they're eventually found. They're separated. Their parents are furious at what they've done. You know, Bill Murray says, this is, that's the last conversation you will ever have. You will never yeah, see each other again. Yeah. And then the former scoutmates who had rejected Sam suddenly come together and feel sympathy for him and decide to break him out of prison and break Susie out from her family and facilitate their running away. So they do. And they canoe them over to the big scout gathering, which is called the Hullabaloo, which I thought was a really funny variation on the actual term, which is a scout jamboree. And they're married by a character played by Jason Schwartzman, who's a scout master, who's the cousin of one of the scouts, who marries them, even though he admits this is not a legal marriage in any way, shape, or form. It's not recognized by the state or the church, right? <laughs> or anyone, anywhere. But they immediately want to marry uh-huh. at 12, yes. so they do. 
And in the meantime, you know, the framing device of the whole show is a narration done by the actor Bob Balaban, the character actor who's been in many, many movies. Yes. And he talks directly to the camera. Right. Initially, he gives you just the lowdown of what the island is, of what it comprises of, what it looks like, who the indigenous original occupants were. And then he lets you know, very much like you said before, like a Homeric omniscient narrator, yeah. that a massive storm will strike in three days' time. Yeah. He's like a one-man Greek chorus, right? And like a chorus, he does some, sometimes interact with the lead players, yes. including directing you know, the search party towards where Sam and Susie are eventually found. So that storm does hit right as Sam and Susie are escaping from the scout hullabaloo. And everybody hunkers down in the church, and Sam and Susie climb to the spire of the church right as you know, thunder and lightning and rain is pelting down and wind is blasting towards them. And they're ready to jump, possibly to their own deaths when Bruce Willis's character reaches out to them and offers to adopt Sam, which will let him stay on the island. And the character of social services, we never find out her name, she's just social services, played by Tilda Swinton, shows up and is the looming authority figure who's going to take Sam off to live in what's implied to be a brutal orphanage, allows this, partially because of the intervention of the two lawyer characters who affirm that this would be legal, this would have legal standing, you'd better not mess with the legality of what we want to do. And he adopts Sam, keeps him on the island, and the two of them continue to have their love, but in secret, which is maybe a Fours version of a happily ever after. They're still 12. They're not officially together. He has to sneak into her house so they can be together and then sneak out. Nobody can know, but they love each other and they have this understanding. Yeah. So a couple of things caught my attention about this movie. Number one, I just, again, great understated acting, a, a compelling story, very interesting visuals. Here, because they're on the island, Anderson has some space for some of the shots, right? And he uses it to great effect because rather than these sort of closed in, you know, scenes that we're used to, the Royal Tannenbaums, there's literally scenes in a closet, right, that, that happened. But now he's got these big fields and the characters are far away from each other very often, you know, and so, but then contrasting that with very tight scenes, intense and, you know, so forth, right? So one of the things I noticed was how French this movie felt to me, right? So there was a review I saw here that I want to kind of mention when I was doing a little research and it said, the film is frequently funny, always elegant or mock elegant, and something that would make Humbert Humbert laugh all the way to his asylum. <laughs> <laughs> so Humbert Humbert is the, you know, character in Lolita, right? The man who falls in love with the, what is she, 12-year-old girl. And, you know, to his downfall. So, and for me, there was a little bit of a creepiness in this relationship between the 12-years-old. And I mentioned earlier about this, you know, these things that wouldn't happen in today's mindset in films like this, you know, you know, the two of them, the 12 year olds kind of making out and talking about French kissing and that sort of thing. Right. It was a little, you know, it was very French. It felt to me, right. I mean, it reminded me of, you know, the, the whole premise reminded me of band of outsiders. I, I think it was, uh, you know, just this idea of escaping, right. This idea of getting away of being, you know, being alone. It also made me start thinking of, how much the work of Jacques Demy 
must have influenced Wes Anderson. I'm not sure if you've ever seen The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, right? I started watching it again last night while I was doing something else. It's a musical from the 1960s where it's one of the few movies that I see and I say, oh, that's Wes Anderson, right? The color palette was just boom, right? And oddly enough, this morning I was doing a little research to see if there was a connection between the two of them and a reviewer for the Hollywood Reporter reviewing Wes Anderson's new movie, which is called The French Dispatch, was saying Anderson has never said that he was, you know, inspired by Jacques Demy, but his musicals are all over it. So you, you might want to check him out. The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is uh, mm. his most famous movie. Uh, so you see in here, Anderson is starting to turn his attention to other cultures in a way, right? We see this in the Grand Budapest Hotel and and uh, Isle of Dogs is, is in Japan and, you know, that sort of thing. So there's a turn of direction here again toward the exotic which is a very forest sort of thing. There are these things that are sophisticated. You know, French film is, is very sophisticated that, you know, way, uh, supposedly. Let's see what else caught my attention here. Oh, oh, yeah. The, there's the scene when the storm is coming in. And this is the other thing, right? So this movie starts three days before a storm is about to come. The biggest storm in, you know, in the, the century or something like that. And so they have to find these kids, not only because the kids have run off, but because there's this huge storm coming. And when the storm starts to hit, Bill Murray, who plays the girl's father, and uh, Frances McDormand, who plays the mother, are lying in bed. And Bill Murray says, I hope the roof flies off and sucks me into space. And Francis McDormand says to him, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And his response is, why? (laughs) And she she says, talking about the kids, we're all they've got. And his response is, that's not enough. And that just broke my heart, right? Because you could see the sadness and desperation in this character. This father who's just trying to do right for his kids, not a great father by any stretch. And in fact, the one getting in the way of his daughter's true love. But you just see this pain in this character that, again, kind of hits you by surprise because the acting is so, I'll use the word carefully, but flat, right? I mean, it's purposely toned down on the affect in the acting. And it makes those moments all the more powerful, I think. Yeah, it's a very subtle performance. You know, he's not, it's a supporting role. It's definitely not a Bill Murray movie. And he's not, doing anything that would make anybody think, oh, remember that moment when Bill Murray did that in in that funny way? But yeah, he's wonderful in it. Another moment that really jumped out for me is when we find out what Susie has brought, what her supplies are as they run away. So at one point they do an inventory of what she's brought with her. Uh For one thing, she's wearing a dress and what a couple (laughs) of characters refer to as Sunday shoes. So not necessarily practical for tromping through the woods, Uh, She's also wearing makeup, Uh, which I found out the actor had done herself. And she doesn't look like a little kid who's too young to be wearing makeup. I mean, she does look like a 12-year-old kid, 
But this is something my partner, Lindsay, actually experienced herself when she was, I think, maybe nine or ten. Because a lot of women have the experience of the time that they got into their mother or their grandmother's makeup kit when nobody was watching and then they put on makeup, but they probably overdid it in a really big way. What happened with Lindsay is she got into it and then put on the makeup. And then when her mother and grandmother found her, they realized, oh, she actually really knows what she's doing. Like right away, she was able to put on the kind of makeup that was like appropriate to her look. So there's that. She brought along a portable record player and a record of a yes. French singer. So in the scene that you mentioned yes. before, when yes. they're making out, they're listening to a French song as they do it. Yes. She's brought yes. along a suitcase of fantasy novels that she stole from the library. And the only reason she didn't bring all of her novels was because the suitcase was too heavy. She's brought her kitten. In a, in a carrying case and a cat and a, you know like 10 tins of cat food and then finally she brought a pamphlet that she found on the family refrigerator which can't remember the phrasing completely but the the gist of it is how to deal with a difficult child and yeah. this is something wes anderson found on his own family fridge when he was a youngster and knew immediately that it referred to himself and when yeah. susie shows this to sam he laughs just a little bit and she immediately gets offended and she goes into the tent and pouts and cries, and he comes in and apologizes. So again, it's a beautifully fourish character. I think Susie is one of the great fours in, in not only in Wes Anderson's body of work, but in film in general. But just that sense of like, I'm broken, I'm flawed, and if somebody yes. makes fun of me for that sense of that, that is going to hurt me more than anything. Particularly yes. if that comes from my beloved. Of even you don't understand me, even yes. you don't yes. get that my pain is real. How dare you? And of yes. course, the, revo- the roles on that are reversed when later there's a scene where they're camping on the beach and she expresses admiration for the fact that he's an orphan, saying that she, all of her favorite characters are orphans and that, you know, your lives are more interesting. And he looks at her and he says, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. Okay. And of course, the part that she responds to, she says, I love you too. But again, there's that sense from him of like, you don't know what it's actually like to be an orphan. You don't know what it's like to feel this particular right. pain. You feel like an orphan, but you actually have parents and siblings in a home. I don't. My parents died, and I'm in a foster home, and he doesn't know this at this point, but even his foster family doesn't want him. And there's a tremendous bond, and we see this in a number of the things. I mean, in Rushmore, the first conversation that Max has with Miss Cross, it comes out that she's a widow and that that his mother died of cancer. There's this bond of shared sadness and tragedy. So that's very much a part of Susie and Sam's relationship in this movie. Yes. Yes. And at some point they show, I I think it was in Rushmore, they show the tombstone of his mother. And it says, the pathos of glory led her to the grave. I mean, it's just like, (laughs) and there's also the scene, and and you alluded to this when in the Royal Tannenbaum's, they go to visit royal's mother i think it is and his son's dead wife is there also and when the son says i want to go visit you know her grave <laughs> royal says oh that's right we have another body here and he gives them half of the flowers that he <laughs> oh my okay yeah so themes of abandonment abound in Wes Anderson's, either through lack of understanding lack of appreciation through fleeing or through death and Royal Tannenbaum's one of the concluding moments is showing Royal's grave. You know, he dies not too long after the events of the movie, yes. and they give him the epitaph that he'd wanted, which is that he died saving his family from a destroyed, burning battleship. <laughs> no basis in reality whatsoever, but pretty good sounding. 
makes them sound <laughs> really heroic and unique. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's go to our final movie here, The Isle of Dogs. Again, this is not, uh, I had not seen this movie. You know, I, I have a flaw in my taste when it comes to animated movies. You know, I think it's maybe watching too many of them when I had kids and, you know, I still have kids, but when my kids were younger and I went through a period where all I watched were animated movies, you know, so I, I missed, you know, some. So I had not seen this. But boy, oh boy, did I love it, right? I mean, for me, this was the highlight of this activity because getting to watch this movie for the first time. And uh, for me, hmm, let's see, well, I'll get into why I love it in a moment, but let me talk about it. So it was released in 2014. Very good reviews. We haven't talked about the reviews, but all of the movies that we've talked about have been very well reviewed on Rotten Tomatoes and others. And it was a pretty successful movie, too. I don't know what the budget was, but it made $64 million. So uh, I think Rushmore broke even, made a little bit of money, perhaps. And, you know, and again, some of those other movies became more successful. But it takes place in the future in a dystopian Japan. A virus spreads among dogs. It first starts off talking about how cats used to be the sort of favored animal in the kingdom. And then there was an uprising, you know, cats were dominating. And then, you know, the dogs and their advocates rose up and, you know, they became, they kind of kicked the cats out of the kingdom and then dogs became the favored animals. But then this virus came up and a lot of it was kind of manufactured. A lot of it was kind of blown out of proportion. And it was the mayor of the mega city who is conspiring to get rid of the dogs. They may have explained why I didn't quite catch it, right? I'm not quite sure why they wanted to get rid of the dogs, whether it was an uprising of the cats or whatever. But a lot of it had to do with the desire to replace them with mechanical dogs, robot dogs, which was, you know, could have been kind of a money-making activity as well, right? So they decide they're going to take these dogs and put them all on what to that point had been garbage island right where they put all the garbage and so the dogs are left to survive now there's a little boy who is the adopted son of the mayor okay and tj did you catch exactly who the boy was and what his relationship to the mayor was i kind of missed it when i was watching it yeah he was a nephew a few degrees removed and the story okay. was that his parents had died in a train crash. So again, okay. you've got an orphan, you've got tragedy. Yes. Ticking all the boxes yet again. Exactly right. Okay. And when he is adopted by the mayor, he is assigned a guard dog, right? This is before the dogs were banished and he developed a very close relationship with the dog. They even had these little ear things that they could speak to each other in, right? So the dog could hear him and respond to his needs. When the dogs are banished, the little boy steals a plane, a very reminiscent of the little prince in a way here, and crash lands on on the island and goes in search of his dog, okay, who had, you know, befriended other dogs eventually, right? I mean, he was uh, locked in a cage, and at first he had heard that the other dogs were cannibal dogs and that they were going to eat him, but they find out that, you know, the dogs are actually friendly. They all sort of band together. The boy lands, goes looking for his dog's spot, walks around for a big part of the movie with a piece of metal sticking out of his head from the plane crash, right? That he couldn't quite get out. A wound that never heals. Yeah. A wound that never heals, right? And the mayor sends his henchmen and the robot dogs to go find 
Atari, the little boy, and to kill all the dogs. Okay, but Atari eventually finds his dog. They, you know, manage to defend themselves against the killer dogs. All the while, there are people searching, you know, standing up for the dogs, searching for a cure, a, a vaccination that will counteract the virus. They can bring the dogs back. You know, so they do eventually come back. They are all saved by the vaccination. Just a note, please go out and get vaccinated if you are not. But, we'll, you know, we'll set that aside for now. <laughs> okay, so I just lost half the listeners in the U.S. But, uh, <laughs> and good riddance to no, them. Yeah, good riddance. Yeah, actually, I think our listeners are pro-vaccine. But anyway, so uh, let's not digress. Um, so the... <laughs> so... They live happily ever after, you know, but again, a movie tinged with loss and sadness, right, uh, with darkness, very studied. Again, you see even more controlled because it's animated, right? So, the, you know, it's almost as if this is Wes Anderson's dream stage, right? I get to actually draw it. The characters are a stop motion characters you know and so again you know, like i said before you can see the hair movements and all this stuff which adds kind of a i'll say a heightened sense of aliveness to the dogs right and this is one of the things that struck me in this movie it's this fight against the replacement of reality of live worthwhile creatures with soulless robots Right. Which is the four's biggest fear. Right. Of, you know, of losing their individuality, their animus in, in a sense. Right. Of who they are. So there was that theme. Now, we see other themes through here. Right. I mean, so we talked about sort of the French influences we saw earlier. This is very, very heavily influenced by Japanese culture, Japanese film. Kurosawa fingerprints are all over this movie. Hayao Miyazaki fingerprints are all over this movie. You see, you know, lots of the aesthetic of the Japanese woodcuts are through this. Even I think some of the music, you know, I'd have to go back and listen again, but I'm pretty sure that some of that music was lifted right out of The Seven Samurai. It was. Yeah, you're 100% right. It was, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was listening to certain scenes and I said, yeah, this is, this is the seven samurai. No right? coincidence. Yeah. And so there's even kind of a seven samurai theme of this group banding together to fight, you know, the enemy, you know, kind of following the leader and, you know, collecting these misfits along the way, you know, as, as we see in, in the seven samurai. So, so for me, this movie, you know, it was compelling emotionally right you know it was uh, you know a fun and interesting story visually wonderful i'm not somebody who will you know value a movie only because of the aesthetic sense of it right i mean it's got to have a good story it's got to be compelling it's got to move me in some way emotionally this one did the tenderness of the relationship between the boy and his dog is, you know, was really quite affecting. And it's funny because it's almost a stereotype in storytelling, like the easiest story to tell, to manipulate people emotionally is a story about a boy and his dog, right? You know, that's kind of a, a cliche 
And yet this worked, right? I mean, it was about this boy trying to find his dog, the dog's desire to be reunited, the dog's feeling of conflict between his love and affection for his owner, but his sense of responsibility to his fellow dogs, right? Let's see what else comes in here. Well, part of that too is is that it isn't simply, like the relationship between the, the boy and the dog that he lost and he's searching for is briefly dealt with in the movie because for the most of that movie, we don't see that dog. You know, we eventually find him. But when he crash lands, the dogs that find him there, they all have names that imply they're an alpha dog. There's Rex, there's King, there's uh, (laughs) Boss. And then the main dog who he eventually bonds with is called Chief, and that's voiced by the great actor Brian Cranston. And Chief is all black. And he strongly identifies as a stray. And I think the Enneagram type of that character, again, probably is another eight. He's mm-hmm. powerful. He's tough. He rejects the notion of having masters. He says, I don't yeah. sit. I don't fetch. <laughs> he doesn't want love. He doesn't want a relationship. He wants right. independence and control. Yes. And one of the few times he was captured and adopted, he said he bit the hand of the boy who tried to pet him so hard that the hand almost yes. had to be removed. Uh, yes. Because that's just who he is. So, and he couldn't explain why. Right? Yeah. When they, why, why did you do that? He couldn't explain why he did it. Yeah. So, yeah. So he's this big, tough, powerful dog. I don't want love. I don't want responsibility. I don't want a human master. And then just through chance circumstance, he and the boy get paired together as the rest of the dogs get separated. And then little by little, they start to grow close. And there's a scene when, when the boy bathed the dog, and it turns out he's not actually black. His yes. fur is mostly white. It's just he was so dirty yes. and so uncared for for so long he didn't know. And then the boy gives him a treat called a puppy snap. It's a little dog biscuit. And Chief has never had one before. And as he bites it, he describes the taste of it and then immediately says, this is my new favorite food. Yes. And little by yes. little comes to love him. And when they finally do reunite with the boy's original dog, uh, Spots, Spots reveals that he does have this responsibility to the other dogs. And then... He asks Chief, who turns out to be his littermate and youngest brother, yes. if he will assume the responsibility of being Atari's yes. dog and being loyal to him and protecting him. And there's this beautiful, tender moment where you see Chief, just his big, sensitive eyes, and he accepts this. And it's this moment of like, I've gone through my whole life rejecting love and connection, and now I'm opening. And there's, yes. there's a strong parallel to the Bruce Willis character in, uh, in Moonrise Kingdom in that we don't know too much about him as a character. It's hard to know what type he is, but he's a yeah. police officer and he's a good one and he's you know, completely comfortable being in charge, but he's always listening to Hank Williams' music. And it comes out in a conversation between him and Sam that he loved the woman and the woman didn't love him back. And that's all you find out about him. But that's the moment where you really see, and again, this is another form of catnip for a four is like, Oh, somebody's sadness, somebody's open, tender heart, no matter what type they are. But it's like, now I'm seeing the real person. Now I'm seeing the tragedy and the sensitivity and the love in your heart and the rejected love. Now I get you and you get me. And now we can really love each other. So that's Chief's journey as a character. And he's the main character of the movie, if there is one. It's the opening of the heart of this tough dog, this tough eight, who just eventually reveals as... You know, I'm sure you can speak to this, that eights, for all their power and toughness, are actually very sensitive. And if you get close to an eight, you'll find out just how loving and tender that they are. But they don't show it to everybody. When they do, it's a big deal. Right. 
Right. So for an eight, just to touch on that topic, showing that is an investment in the other person and they invest very carefully because once you are part of my world, I am responsible for you. You know, it's that old, you know, thing about in some cultures, if you save somebody's life, then you have to take care of them, right, from there on out. And eights sort of think that way, right? So if I let you in, then anytime there's a problem for you, I'm going to be the way I'm on there for it. And, you know, I, I can't give that out lightly, you know, so there is this element. And it's not, you know, a lot of people think eights are afraid of being vulnerable and all this sort of stuff. And I'm not going to get into that debate, but a lot of eights won't really resonate with that. It's just, it's this awareness of the need to be strong very often because other people are expecting you to be strong for them, right? And so I only share that, you know, uh, carefully. And if I expose the vulnerability, it means that I have to now, you know, take responsibility for you. Right to the uh, end. Yes, right. So, but yeah, so it's interesting, again, when, you know, they clean off chief and find out that he is actually a white dog with spots kind of like the dalmatian mice from the royal tenenbaums right which you know kept walking through the movie every so often okay and so other things here again i mentioned before about the storytelling and meta meta storytelling here and it happens through interpreters periodically, not all the time, because most of the dialogue between people is in Japanese, right? The dogs speak English, the, the, the humans speak Japanese, except for the occasional translator, who is usually either an interpreter for some formal meeting or a broadcaster of some sort, who is kind of giving you the story again. So it's, it's a, a fourth storytelling device that we see in the four movies that we've talked about so far today. Okay. There's also a, just a backstory given by one of the dogs voiced by F. Murray Abraham at the top of the movie. So he tells the story of the relationship between dogs and cats in Japan and how they were eventually rejected just because of the preference of the ruling family at the time. And he's yes. looking right at the camera as he's telling you this story. It's not just voiceover. It is a puppet of a dog whose mouth is moving telling you this. Yes. And then some of the soundtrack music, too. There's taiko drumming, and we see stop motion figures of taiko drummers drumming and a detail that i noticed is that you can see a basketball hoop in the background of where the taiko drummers are as if he set this in a high school gymnasium for no particular reason oh interesting he didn't have to he constructed it but he gave them a real place (laughs) to be just (laughs) because oh man all right so uh, other things again that we see through here is the you know again the mannered and very detailed background still we see a lot of the centering frames right uh, where you know when the dogs are talking or people are talking they're right flat in the middle of a frame again that's sort of a flat background that we see drawing you in and you know I, i've only been to japan once and i think i was there for about 36 hours and i would never say that any culture is you know all one type or another but there's a whole lot of four going on in Japanese culture in a lot of ways, right? So with the aesthetic of wabi-sabi and shibumi and, you know, some of the other Japanese, kind of the Zen aesthetic is very fourish for me. For me, Japanese culture is about as foreign to my mindset as we could be. I'm fascinated by Japanese culture, Japanese philosophy, Japanese aesthetics. But culturally, it's just a really, 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 really different place 
right? So again, the perfect place for a four from the United States to make a movie is in Japan, right? As we saw with Lost in Translation. Something Russ Hudson said once, specifically referring to navigating fours or social fours in his terminology, is that they're very often expats. If if I'm conspicuously the foreigner in the country where I am, then I'm just different right away. All you have to do is glance at me to know that. And if you're a four, that's a good thing. Yes. Particularly if I'm not a crass tourist. But if I'm walking through this as someone with taste and aesthetic sense of like, I'm going to I'm going to see the good things. I'm going to partake in the good things. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I would go even further and say that navigating fours are expats in their own homes uh, very often, right? Again, it gets this fourish thing of I don't belong here. But one of the fi- things I find with navigating fours is that I don't belong here and I don't want to be here. Yeah, I'm going to go see what else is out there. In, in the world. So, whereas the preserving four loves their home, loves their environment, you know, uh, takes refuge in it, the navigating four almost wants to get away, right? Uh, in, in the way that you're describing. So, all right. So, four movies about the type four. Nope. Uh, something else about the yeah, Isle of Dogs? One more thing I want to say about Isle of Dogs yeah. is that the big four theme that I found in this movie is there's how much beauty there is in the rejected. So the dogs are exiled to an island of garbage, which you'd think would be the least beautiful and appealing place there is. But the way it's arranged, because it's a stop-motion film, so they can arrange whatever they want in the way it's filmed, there's incredible beauty because this island doesn't just have garbage, but even the parts that are garbage are quite beautiful. You know, there's one scene where they're in a cavern of colored bottles that are all the colors of the rainbow. It's a real feast for the eyes. There's other scenes where you can see the ruins of industrial works and of a theme park in the background. And as a four, one of my predilections, and I've talked about this in one of my monologues on stage, I love seeing photos that are shared online of abandoned, derelict hotels and theme parks and shopping malls. (laughs) There's such beauty in the destruction of it. And I once did a road trip from southern Illinois to Arkansas on a minor highway, so it wasn't an interstate. You could actually see where people lived. And I kept seeing collapsed trailer homes. And every time I would go by, I was in the passenger seat, I, my eyes would just be glued to the window of like, look at that. That's beautiful. Nobody else thinks that it's beautiful, but I do. So there's that with the island itself, and there's that with the dogs themselves, because the dogs are rejected. They're the despised yes. group, and they're presented to us as main characters, as individuals. You know, each of the dogs in the main group of dogs that accompanies Atari on his quest, they each have their own backstory. They each have their own personality. There's a conversation about what their favorite foods are. They have their, you know, they're not uniform dogs by any means. And then they're scared, as you mentioned, of the original indigenous inhabitants of this island, which are said to be cannibals. But when we find them, we find out. So, so those dogs are the rejected of the rejected, these supposed cannibal dogs. And when we meet them, their leader, voiced by Harvey Keitel, tells the story of who they really are which is that they were experimented on. They were lab dogs. So many of them are malformed in some way. They might be missing a limb or missing an eye, or they've got scars on them or missing patches of fur and they're diseased. And that they did have to eat one dog. They put him out of his misery and that they howl with anguish. As they mentioned, they're so sad at having had to do that. And of course they're starving. They're just getting by and they save the main characters. They don't eat them. They don't attack them. They don't bother them at all. They bring them in and they help them as if to say there's not only beauty in the rejected, but there's beauty in the rejected of the rejected and there's integrity in them too. We're the misfits and we will accept 
anyone who's rejected, anyone who's despised, yes. anyone who's cursed and unwanted. We get it. So come yes. and live with us. Yes. The story of the cannibalism that they talked about, it was emotionally moving, right? Sad. You know, you could feel the howling. You could feel a part of yourself howling inside. I was immediately placed into that position, right? And again, it, it, it came out of nowhere almost emotionally, right? Because you're watching this movie and, okay, it's interesting. You know, you kind of, I am kind of caught in the, you know, the aesthetics, the construction of the movie, you feel almost a slight emotional detachment from it. And then all of a sudden, bam, you get hit right in the heart with something, right? Which happens in all of these movies, right? All, all of these movies. It's you're expecting this to be, okay, I'm, I'm not being touched here. These are, you know, not emotional characters. And then boom, right? You, you get it right in, the, right in the chest. So very, very touching stuff. All right, great. So uh, again, Four movies about type four, Wes Anderson. Highly, highly recommend these movies. You know, I have not seen all of Wes Anderson's movies. The ones I have seen, I've really, really liked. And this has inspired me to go and pick up, uh, you know, watch some of the ones that I haven't seen yet. So uh, thank you, it's, uh, TJ. You suggested Wes Anderson for type four. Really, really good call. And so any any other closing comments you would make, TJ? Yeah, I would highly recommend watching The Grand Budapest Hotel. I think yeah. you know he takes it even further than in Moonrise Kingdom in terms of his creating the environment, manipulating the environment, painting it in vivid colors. The main character in that, played by Rafe Fiennes, is the hotel concierge, and I'm pretty sure he's a four who just wants everything to be exactly up to his very high standards. And then Bottle Rocket. We mentioned Bottle Rocket before. Yes. When I reached out to that friend who knew Wes Anderson personally, I asked him, again, not trying to lead him to any given place, which character from any of his movies he thought was most like the actual Wes Anderson. And again, here's his answer. He says he's like Owen Wilson's character from Bottle Rocket if that character also had Luke Wilson's character's overarching kindness, quietness, and gentle way of moving through the world. Yeah, yeah. So Interesting. that movie is wonderful to watch, and you can see the seeds of many of his ideas and aesthetics that then played out through the rest of his career. And you can also watch the original short. That's on YouTube. The original 12-minute oh, black-and-white oh. bottle rocket is available to watch. Yeah. So you can see a very young Owen and Luke Wilson in that, and yeah. the very young sensibilities of Wes Anderson just playing and discovering. And, yeah, yeah I love his stuff. Can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah. Great, great. So we'll have a, a lot of these references in the show notes. There were some really good things I found talking about Wes Anderson and his aesthetic online uh, that'll be in the show notes. And we'll be sure to add those other movies as other references. So TJ, thanks again for the conversation. This was fun and we covered a whole lot of ground here. We talked an awful lot about Type 4. Next up is one that I am very excited about. We're going to have back Enneagram teacher Tom Condon, who you mentioned earlier in this podcast, author of the Enneagram movie and video guide, I believe. I always screw up the name of Tom's book, but Tom is kind of the guru of the Enneagram and movies. Uh, you know, started writing about this years and years ago. Tom's a good friend of mine and really, really knows film and really, really knows the Enneagram. So we're going to be talking about Enneagram Type 7 
and Steven Spielberg. Okay, so uh, join us next time for the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Thanks, TJ. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be a part of this.